0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to another wonderful, exciting, enlightening session of The Learning Curve. Every week we bring on a great guest, sometimes guests, but of course we could never do this without having two people on the call who can make life great. And of course, with Kara being on the call, life is already greater. How are you, my friend?
1: I'm well. Life is great, Gerard. Feeling a little bit tired this this morning, but I'm actually with family in an undisclosed location, of course, though. So exactly, that's really nice to be with family. So I'm feeling fortunate. It is wonderful to hear your voice. Just a, a ton going on in the world. I know we've got... As usual, a ton going on in Boston, probably relevant in that Boston is one of the major urban centers that folks like to watch, especially when it comes to NAEP scores and stuff like that. We're going through a huge superintendent search. There's continued talk of receivership, stuff like that. So not, not that that's great, but it's sort of exciting. <laughs> it's Education never stops, right? Uh, education policy and ed reform, the need for it, it never sleeps. And that's why you and I don't sleep, Gerard. Because we're always here trying to tell people what's up and what's going on, what's going on in your world.
0: So it's funny you bring up school choice because my story of the week, in fact, is about school choice. And it's from your home state of Michigan. And so Governor Whitmer, she decided to veto a bill that was passed last autumn, the Student Opportunity Scholarship Program and under that program had the governor not vetoed it, it would provide it up to $7,800 for private school tuition or expenses such as tutoring. Now the program like many of the programs across the country that are focused on scholarships really target lower income families as well as middle income families and as we know from guests that we've had from our own professional and personal experience there are families who love private education not because they hate public schools it's because they love private education and what it has to offer and given the fact that they are taxpayers they want to use some of their money for that so it was vetoed and of course some of the critics say there's no research to show that in fact if passed and comes law and it gets into action, that would make a difference. Well, there are a couple of researchers, a new report published by the Mackinac Center, which is a Michigan think tank, part of the SPN network. They looked at a number of scenarios, and two of the researchers, one has been DeGraw, the other one's Martin Lukin, who I met years ago when he had first began his career at the University of Arkansas and has moved on then to do other work. So they've been identified that the program, in fact, went into effect. It would either A, cost taxpayers as little as $106 million, or save them as much as $386 million. So let me stop there one of my criticisms within the family of the school choice movement is that we have to be very careful when we say that a choice program has no financial impact on the public school particularly when the student leaves i mean it has an impact one way or another so we've matured in a movement enough to say as these two scholars have done either have a loss or a gain And so here's how we come to both the loss and the gain. So the possible savings that can happen for the state is because the state will ensure that school districts are funded with at least $8,700 per student. And that's the maximum amount the state would have paid for an opportunity scholarship, roughly it's 90% of that. And so for the critics to say that they are left with no money is simply untrue. Well, let's go to the next area so the districts could actually save money because they could spend less money on variable costs when students leave private schools so the authors calculate that in the short term there's some variable costs that can come from classroom instruction and services such as counseling and professional development they estimate that that could cost or save as much as eight thousand seven hundred fifty five dollars per student, which is more than they would lose with 8,700. But then they said, let's take it a step further. They said gains and losses really depends on what is called the switcher rate. Now, this isn't a title or phrase that existed 30 years ago when the Milwaukee program began. And so one of the scholars, Martin, published a paper in March, 2020, and in his paper, he looked at the fiscal impact of K 12 education choice, and he talked about the switcher program. And according to his program, if this is when, so these are students who left public schools and went to private schools. That's the switcher rate. So here's how the authors calculate the switcher rate it is the percentage of students who use the scholarship for private schools who otherwise would have enrolled in public schools. So if Gerard's a public school A and I decide to switch to private school C, then I'm a switcher. Now the authors say with a 60% switcher rate and an average scholarship amount of about $6,000, taxpayers would lose $1,400 per scholarship. And people would say, ah, see, we're losing money. But with a 90% switcher rate, And scholarships of four thousand dollars, taxpayers would actually save three thousand four hundred and thirty-five dollars. Put another way, if there's a ninety percent switcher rate and the scholarship is four thousand dollars, taxpayers would save three thousand four hundred and thirty-five dollars. Well critics will say, I mean even some of our friends would say there's no guarantee you're gonna have a ninety percent switcher rate. Well, that's actually not true. So Luke Martin in a 2020 study, he identified that when he looked at 27 estimates of switcher programs from eight lottery-based evaluations of six private school choice programs across the United States, he identified that the switcher rates for both full samples and subgroups of students range from 52% to 98%. So within the range in which he's speaking. Now, he identified that the lower bound weighted average and medium switcher rate from those studies was actually 84 percent. So the upper bound weighted average and median switcher rates are actually 90 percent and 89 percent. When you look at African-American students in three privately funded programs, guess what? Their switcher rate is 93 percent. And so based upon his evaluation, he believes it's not unlikely that you could have a 90% switcher rate, which in fact means you can have $3,435 saved per student, which when you go further into the article identifies that the state could in fact save over $300 million. Now, of course, the governor vetoed it. Well, now it's now to go to the voters. And as of right now, there are at least 500,000 signatures on a petition And if the petition actually passes, it could go back to the legislature for approval without need for the governor's signature. So if they get the votes and it goes to the legislature, there's a good chance it will become law. But let's keep one thing in mind in terms of history. In 2000, voters had an opportunity to vote for Proposal 1, which would have created a voucher program in the state. It was soundly defeated. 70% to 30%. The difference this time, 22 years later, is that under the current scenario, it can go back to the legislature and it can pass that way. So it is a very interesting twist of political fate. We'll see if they had enough signatures. This is your home state. What are your thoughts?
1: Oh, Michigan. Yes, Michigan. Pure Michigan. I have so many thoughts, Jared. First of all, I want to thank you for getting super wonky and weedy. In going through this Lucan paper, I think Ben Bendigrow and Marty Lucan are both wonderful. I'd like to give a shout out to my late colleague, Zach Eckert, who worked really hard on that ESA, by the way, it was a good bill. What I think is so interesting about this, and I'm appreciative of the Marty Lucans of the world who really get into the numbers and can get really wonky because it's important, right, for folks like you and me, when we, for example, go to testify in front of a state legislature and tell legislatures, how much is this going to cost and how much is this going to save? But I, you know, I, always think of when I think about these things, I think of my mom, (laughs) like, love you, mom. You're amazing. She lives in Michigan, but she doesn't at the bottom line for her is not about cost and who's going to win out, right? There is this draining argument that, oh gosh, everything you do, if you provide a better option for a child in Detroit who has none, good gracious, you're going to harm the public schools for the wealthy kids in West Bloomfield, Michigan, or something like that. But you know what my mom cares about is this high level sort of what's good. And you and I, when we get really wonky, I think one of the things that studies like this do, as valuable as they are, is... To some extent, and so I'm pushing back here, and again, love to Marty and Ben, is that to some extent, we're giving in to the narrative that critics of school choice write for us, right? So like, oh, we have to address this idea. And what always comes to my mind is that anywhere you have a school choice program, we should also be pointing out to folks that, you know what, kids leave districts all the time for reasons that we don't even know about, for reasons that are complete because their parents are making choices to move to a better district. They're making a choice to move to a better state. We don't count those numbers. And so we get really worked up about what will happen if 3,000 kids go in across the state, by the way, in a state like Michigan, where NAEP scores have been on the decline for years. Let's remind our listeners, because we've had a really wonderful scholar, I think somebody by the name of Kimberly Robinson on the show, talking about a lawsuit that's still pending in Detroit because they're trying to frame learning and especially literacy as a human right. Most kids in the city of Detroit who attend their public schools can't read. That's not new by the way. But God forbid we give them any choices, right? Instead, we get embroiled in this argument of we have to somehow prove that kids deserve an option. And oh, goodness, they might take some money with them. Maybe we should be talking about the fact that that money belongs to families. It's taxpayer money, by the way. And in districts across this country, enrollment is declining, Enrollment's declining for tons of reasons. And again, we don't capture it. We don't capture when kids move. I want to know what the switch rate is when families who can actually afford to go to a better school district up and leave Detroit, because by the way, parents know, parents know that they're not getting the education that their kids deserve in need. So it's really interesting stuff. I love the wonkiness of it. I think it helps folks like you and me do our jobs. Hopefully our listeners, I think many of them will find it really interesting. We got to have this data, but I hope that on the whole, we don't lose sight of the overall argument for people like my mom, like the kitchen table talk. And at the end of the day, to me, Gerard, the kitchen table talk is, by the way, when you are perpetually failing children, when you are perpetually failing families, constitutionally they, in, under most state constitutions that do guarantee some sort of access or maybe not right. I don't know Michigan Constitution, Bendigoro probably does. But it's, if we frame education as a human right, which indeed I think it is, I think you think it is too. I'm pretty sure your wife thinks it is. We should be talking about it in those terms. Nonetheless, though. A really interesting paper. I thank folks like Marty for, for doing the financial data because we need it. And certainly, I'm not your girl. I'm not the person who's ever going to be able to do that. But thank you for that, Gerard. And always like to hear about my home state, the beautiful state of Michigan, even when sometimes I find it really frustrating. We'll see what happens with that ESA. I think you're right to point out the history here and probably not in favor of families, but we we shall see. We can always hold out hope. Gerard, I've got an interesting article today and we've talked a little bit on this show about for-profit education, mostly in terms of charters and this attack on charters as, oh my gosh, they contract with for-profit companies and we love to ignore the fact, or some love to ignore the fact, I'm looking at you Biden administration, that actually public school districts have to contract with for-profit companies all the time to get things done. So at any rate, many of us, Gerard, invested in online tools, what we might call ed tech during the pandemic. I know I certainly did stuff that I thought I would never let my even five-year-old do online <laughs> at the time. Five-year-old, six-year-old do online. Suddenly it was let's get a Chromebook and here's a math program. So we would think that ed tech companies were Booming right now, post pandemic, during the pandemic, and because many of them started up. Let's not forget, by the way, to your previous story, that in 2020, on the heels of the pandemic, we doubled the number of ESA programs in this country, education savings accounts. What does that mean? That means you need technology in order to provide platforms, something that almost looks like, I like to tell people it looks like Amazon, so that when people have state money in their account, they can go in and choose from a list of state approved services. You need technology to make that happen smoothly for parents. So we would think that edtech should be booming. I know a lot of our listeners probably went to ASU GSV recently and learned all about this, but according to my article in Forbes by a guy named Derek Newton, it's been a brutal year for public education companies. So education companies that have gone public. And this I found really, really surprising. So for example, they talk about out of nine tech companies in a group surveyed by a gentleman named Phil Hill, almost all of them went down in value. For example, some went from 41% to around 20% they lost value in the stock market. I mean, that is really astounding when you think about it. Interestingly, the only one in this group that went up is Pearson education. Now, Teachers and others might know Pearson. It's a textbook company. They do a lot in the testing space, formative assessments. I mean, goodness gracious, who knows where we're going in terms of testing companies and annual summative assessments as we watch dates very unfortunately pull away. But I think that formative assessments are a place. But Pearson is a really old company it's 178 years old because it's a publishing company compared to some of these ed tech startups and so it sounds like we're in a place where the bubble is sort of bursting a little bit and i just want to quote here from this article according to the author he says when you see the value retreats of these companies together a view of the market as a unit, the results are somewhat shocking. The pandemic was, after all, supposed to accelerate education tech and digital learning specifically. And it was supposed to be the moment when these companies not only proved their value, but richly rewarded their investors. Now, I know that The idea of investors being rewarded from education ventures makes some listeners squeamish, but this is the world. And as I said, lots of public school districts also have to draw on for-profit publicly traded companies. It's a fascinating article because I think maybe what we're seeing is just the decline on the end of as people return back to school, as people don't want their kids on screens all day parents are going to start picking and choosing. What are the things that work? What are the things that really add value to my kids' education, to my life? And what are the things that don't? And it could be that post-pandemic, there were a lot of great ideas out there, but now we're really going to separate the good from the bad and the wheat from the chaff and see what works for parents. So this is one to watch. Rarely get to talk about the stock market when it comes to education on the learning curve, but I found this story to be absolutely fascinating. Okay, Gerard, enough of our chit chat. I think that it is probably time to bring in our guest. And this week we're speaking with Nicholas Lehman. He is the Joseph Pulitzer II and Edith Pulitzer Moore professor of journalism and dean emeritus of the Columbia School of Journalism, author of the books The Promised Land, The Great Black Migration and How It Changed America, and The Big Test. It's a good book. The Big Test, The Secret History of the American Meritocracy. So much to talk about. Coming up right after this, friend of the show, Carrie McDonald, is going to be interviewing our guest, Nicholas Lehman.
2: Well, I am thrilled to be able to welcome Professor Nicholas Lemon to the Learning Curve podcast. Nicholas Lemon served as Dean of Columbia Journalism School from 2003 to 2013. Now Dean Emeritus and Joseph Pulitzer II and Edith Pulitzer-Moore Professor of Journalism. He also directs Columbia Global Reports, a book publishing venture and Columbia World Projects, a new institution that implements academic research outside the university. Lemon is a staff writer at The New Yorker. He's widely published and is the author of six books, including Transaction Man, The Rise of the Deal and the Decline of the American Dream, Redemption, The Last Battle of the Civil War, The Big Test, The Secret History of the American Meritocracy, The Promised Land, The Great Black Migration, and How It Changed America. He is a member of the New York Institute for the Humanities, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the American Academy of Political and Social Science. Professor Lemon, thank you so much again for being on the Learning Curve podcast.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: I'm excited to talk about a couple of your books today. As I mentioned in your bio, you've written several excellent books. We're going to talk today, though, about The Big Test, the history of the American meritocracy, which remains sort of the definitive volume on the SAT. Would you tell our listeners why you decided to write this book, as well as talk about the larger role of standardized tests in trying to measure and evaluate academic merit and individual success in American education?
3: Well, a lot of nonfiction writing is quasi-autobiographical, even if the writer doesn't use the first person. So I sort of grew up shaped by the system that I'm describing here. So that was part of it. And I wondered who invented this, where did it come from? I was doing a previous book that you mentioned called The Promised Land, and in doing that book, I was spending a lot of time in poor neighborhoods, in, mostly in Chicago and Mississippi. It doesn't exist anymore because it's been torn down. But at the time I was doing the book, the largest public housing project in the world was the Robert Taylor Homes on the south side of Chicago. And I was there a great deal because one of the main characters in that book lived there, and I'd go visit her and talk. So the thing with the Robert Taylor homes was it was just a couple miles from downtown Chicago, new to Chicagoans is the loop, and it was right on a elevated train line. So you could look out of the window of the apartment and see it. It was really nearby. And yet it seemed a million miles away. I started thinking, why does opportunity seem so universal to so many people in America, and so distant to other people. What's the structure or system that distributes chances to advance yourself in our society? That was another motivation for me in getting started on that project.
2: So the Big Test traces the history, origin, design, purpose of the SAT, who invented it and why. Could you talk about Henry Chauncey, James Bryant, Conant, and their ideas about testing and education and whether the system they pioneered apportioned opportunity equally or fairly? You've just mentioned why that might not be the case. But in particular, could you discuss how high schools, colleges, and universities have used or, as the case may be, misused tests as they relate to race and equality of educational opportunity?
3: Okay, well, so first of all, like a lot of things in life, the people who started the system, all the things you just sort of alluded to just didn't occur to them for even a second. They were trying to do one thing, one set of things, and didn't think about another set of things that turned out to be controversial about the system. So the person who actually invented the SAT was a man named Carl Brigham, who was a psychologist and who had been involved in early IQ testing The first administration of the SAT was 1926, almost 100 years ago. James Conant was the president of Harvard, taking over in 1933, and Henry Chauncey was an assistant dean at Harvard who worked for Conant. So at the time, Harvard undergraduate college was dominated by, I guess, what you'd now call preppies, that is, people who came from fortunate circumstances and had been to New England boarding schools and that sort of thing. And Conan wanted to change the university and change the population of the college somewhat. So he decided to start a scholarship program and he called in Henry Chauncey and he said, I need you to find me 10 or 12 people a year who will come to Harvard on full scholarship. This will be called Harvard National Scholars. And I'm looking for people who don't live on the East Coast and didn't go to private school, but who have extraordinary academic ability. So your job, Henry Chauncey, is to find some way of locating these people, find a test or something. So Chauncey went around and visited all the people who were doing tests at that time, met Carl Brigham and came back and said, we'll use the SAT to identify these scholarship students. So that's kind of how it all started.
2: Really interesting. And so over the last couple of decades, higher education and even elite colleges have gradually backed off from requiring SAT scores for applicants. I know I went to Bowdoin College, which several decades ago was one of the first colleges to make SAT submissions optional for applicants. Uh, And this is especially true during COVID with more universities and colleges making the SAT optional in terms of uh, application procedures and the American Bar Association has called for law schools to set aside LSAT scores. So as testing of all kinds is increasingly coming under fire across K-12 and higher education alike, will this lead to greater academic excellence, do you think, and racial equity in American education and society at large?
3: Academic excellence and racial equity aren't exactly the same thing and that raises an issue, which is the SAT was originally administered to find 10 students for one college. But for reasons I can tell you, if you're interested, it became an instrument that millions of American high school students would take every year as the sort of test that was the interface between high school and college. So it was perceived and to some extent was a kind of gateway to opportunity in America for millions of people, not a way of kicking a small handful of future academics. And that meant that everything got a lot more charged than it had been when it was starting. And one of the many issues that came up was the people who, there was a moment that we now forget, or more than a moment, a long period, when what I guess you would call the white liberal establishment in the U.S was just didn't think very much about race, even during the Jim Crow era, and that includes Franklin D. Roosevelt. It's amazing if you go back and read things written by American liberals from about 1880 to about 1960. If they're white, they almost never mentioned race as an issue in the United States. So it didn't occur to the inventors of this system that it would conflict with racial equity. And indeed, if you asked them, what do you think of racial equity, they would have given you a blank look because it just wasn't part of their mental equipment that this was an issue that they should think about. So it turned out that there was a real conflict between the goal of admission by SAT or ACT and the goal of I wouldn't call it, instead of racial equity, I would call it racially integrating elite universities to a much greater extent. Those two goals did not go naturally hand in hand. They were voluntarily adopted by most of the elite universities at roughly the same period of time, but they don't naturally go together, and that's led to a lot of controversy.
2: So we've been talking a lot about your book, The Big Test. I think we could probably spend uh, our whole time today talking about that. But I do want to get to the second book that we'll be discussing, which is your book called The Promised Land, The Great Black Migration and How It Changed America, which was a New York Times bestseller in 1991. Would you tell our listeners about the Great Migration, one of the largest movements of people in U.S. history, where approximately six million black people moved from the American South to Northern, Midwestern, and Western states roughly from the 1910s until the 1970s. Can you shed some light on that for us?
3: Yeah, The Great Migration. When I started working on this book, which was around 1980, I guess, it's weird The The Great Migration, which, as you say, is one of the most significant internal migrations, not just in American history, but in world history, it wasn't part of the conversation. It's much more part of the conversation now And my thinking was, this deserves a book. I can't believe there isn't a real full-dress book about it, especially since at that point, many, many, many migrants were still alive so you could go talk to people who had been through it. So basically, for reasons going back to slavery, Black America was predominantly Southern from the very beginning. And as more opportunities opened up, Outside the South, during the Jim Crow era especially, and as there were fewer opportunities in the South, especially if you didn't want to be a field hand picking cotton, people realized that they could dramatically change their life circumstances just by, for example, getting on a bus and taking a trip from Mississippi to Chicago and so millions and millions of people did. They went up the train lines and bus lines from the central south up to Midwestern cities like Chicago, from the Atlantic coast, up to cities like New York and Philadelphia and Boston, from places like Texas, often west to Los Angeles and San Francisco.
2: Right. So the promised land really captures this cross-country migration by car and by train of the rural southern african american sharecroppers and workers to these northern cities as well as really gets into how this migration changed these cities with southern food faith work manufacturing and culture Authors like Zora Neale Hurston and Richard Wright and musicians, including Louis Armstrong and Muddy Waters, lived and told this story. Could you talk about the larger lessons in terms of our shared history, civil rights and public policies that educators and lawmakers should know about this pivotal episode in America?
3: I would go back to some of what we talking about before about why didn't white liberals, think about race as a big issue for a long time. And part of the reason was the language of the time was the the Negro problem. People would say race is a distinctive American dilemma, to use the title of a famous book, but it was seen as a Southern issue because most Black people lived in the South. And what the Great Migration did was nationalized race. It made race a national issue rather than a regional issue. And that pervades our society in many, many, many different ways in terms of culture, music, literature, all those things, food that you just mentioned in terms of politics and political struggles, cultural issues, all that stuff. If you think about how the murder of George Floyd sort of ignited the country. Things like that always happened outside the South, but most white people thought things like that happened, but they only happened in the South. And so there wasn't the same sort of consciousness of race relations as a non-regional issue.
2: So to sort of wrap up, because I think this is an important point to end on, is your book was written in the early 1990s and explored these wider questions about race and racial equality, which, of course, well preceded the murder of George Floyd in 2020 by a white police officer in a Midwestern city. So from MLK's mistreatment during the Chicago Freedom Movement in 1966 to busing in the 19. 70s in Boston. Black people have also obviously experienced these historic injustices in northern cities. Would you talk about the social and educational policies that might help remediate America's ongoing racial struggles?
3: That's a huge topic, and it has been under debate for a really long time. And in the book, I go into a lot of detail on the early phases of the debate. Long story short, There was an attitude among some that the problem is the Jim Crow system of legal segregation in the South. And if we get rid of the Jim Crow system, everything will be fine. Well, that turned out not to be true, even though getting rid of the Jim Crow system was an enormous achievement. So the Voting Rights Act of 1965 passed and became law a huge, huge landmark. And then just a few days later, Watts in Los Angeles went in flames over a policing incident in a place that didn't have Jim Crow laws. So that's a kind of capsule way of saying it. There's no one little thing that would help. There's a lot of big things that would help. I think the model would be to get beyond having a segregated country. And if we can do that in housing and education and employment all those big systems, I think that's the best thing to do. It's a little frustrating that in the George Floyd moment that so many people, at least white people, frame this as an attitudinal issue, that there's something called a racist. And if you are one that's bad, but you can sort of be trained and then you're not one and then everything's fine. It's going to take a lot more than that.
2: Such important and timely work even now, even though you wrote these books again back in the early 1990s and in the 1990s, The Promised Land and The Big Test, still very relevant today in 2022. Professor Nicholas Lemon, thank you again for being on the Learning Curve podcast.
3: You're welcome. Glad to be here.
1: As always, listeners, we're going to close it out with our tweet of the week. This one's super appropriate, especially to Gerard's story about my beautiful home state of Michigan. It is from Ed Choice also home of Marty Lucan, who wrote the paper we discussed. The quote is this, Americans are nearly 10 times more likely to support ESAs than oppose them. And that is coming from EdChoice's annual public opinion survey. I love this because what it really is, what it really shows us is that most Americans probably don't know what an ESA is. But when you tell folks, if you could take the money that the state allocates to your child's education and choose the school or educational experiences and services that are best for them. Would you support that? And resoundingly, most Americans say, yes, it's all in how you ask the question folks and giving people the experience, the more people that have that experience, the better. We're going to learn a lot about that from our guest next week. In Learning Curve, listeners, when you tune in next week, we are going to have with us just a wonderful human, a wonderful woman, Senator Patricia Puertas-Rucker of the state of West Virginia, the state which has launched accepting applications for the most expansive ESA in existence. All students in West Virginia who have previously attended a public school are eligible for this education savings account or scholarship account, as some might call it. And we are going to be speaking with Patricia Rucker, who was absolutely critical. She sponsored the bill, critical in getting it passed, and is the current chair of the Senate Education Committee. Until then, Learning Curve listeners, please take good care, and we'll be back with you real soon.